Well, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. You'll find that on page 81 in the Pew Bible if you want to use the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word yourself, certainly love for you to take that Pew Bible home as our gift to you today. Um, This morning we are are beginning our summer series in the book of Leviticus. And as I mentioned, I'm looking forward to it. And um, I'm praying that we all would look forward to it as I think God is going to speak to us in powerful, wonderful ways. So Leviticus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make an atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meaning. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priests shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, which with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for this day in which we can gather and we can bring our worship to our risen King. We're thankful for the truths in your scripture that we can consider this morning that I think bear profound implications on how we, your people, continue to worship you. Help us. Help us know your will for our lives. Help us to be conformed to your word that we might honor you in all we say and do. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the 16th century that Thomas uh, uh, Cranmer the, became the first archbishop of the newly established Church of England. Now, uh, uh, Cranmer shared many of the concerns of the continental Protestant reformers that the medieval Roman Catholic Church's practices of, of uh, ceremony and ritual exclusively deprived the people from understanding who God is and how they might follow God throughout their life. In, in particular concern for Cranmer is the daily Bible readings according to the liturgical calendar, which provided only short bits of Scripture that are to be read, leaving the vast majority of Scripture unknown to God's people. 
And so Cranmer, when he wrote in the preface of the Book of Common Prayer in 1549, said all the whole Bible should be read over once in the year. And he offered, in fact, a calendar there in the Book of Common Prayer in which four chapters of Scripture shall be read daily. And if you follow the entire calendar, uh, you would read the entire Bible within a year with the exception of Leviticus. After all, who wants to read Leviticus? Cranmer must have thought, I think, um, well, to ask the people to read Leviticus will kill any kind of Bible reading commitments that the people might have. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. January 1st rolls around and you have a renewed conviction to read the whole Bible this year, as many of us, about over a hundred of us, have uh, pledged to do. And, you know, with Genesis, of course, is thrilling. And, and Exodus, I mean, God's defeating Pharaoh with gnats and frogs. And it's all very interesting and profound. And, and we're just going full speed until we run into this insurmountable wall of 27 chapters of legal code called Leviticus. Right? Even lawyers don't want to read that much law. Okay? And, and of course, it's very odd. It's full of blood. You have odd laws on skin rashes and bodily discharges and mildew and building codes and how to cut your hair and what to eat. You even find out in Leviticus, if you get in a fight with another guy, where you're allowed to grab them and where you're not allowed to grab them. Right? And it's all in this very kind of strange and confusing book and make matters more challenging is that life is very different today, isn't it? Right? We may uh, have to clean up some spilled coffee in the church building today, but chances are we will not be cleaning up any goat blood, right? Or you may leave your Bible behind. You're not going to leave your sheep entrails behind today, right? It's very, very different, isn't it? In fact, one uh, commentator said in Leviticus, we read about sacrifices that are no longer offered, a priesthood that no longer exists, and laws we are no longer obligated to obey. So I ask, who wants to read Leviticus? Well, I will tell you who. I do, right? And I have been reading it over and over again. Now, I may be the only one or just a handful of few. In fact, I decided eight months ago that this summer I'm going to preach, God willing, through the book of Leviticus. And I've been sharing this idea with people um, for months, right? Uh, Eight months ago, I started sharing this idea. And the response has always been unanimous. Please don't do this to us. (laughs) And you're going to kill church growth. Um, Someone said, if you preach a different book, I'll increase my tithe. Okay. I asked how much. Okay. I'm just kidding. That didn't happen at all. But, but everyone has been very, very concerned. And I'm aware of that. So I just want to let you know I'm aware of your concern. I've been pastoring by God's will since 1998. And in these last 19 years, not a single person has ever come up to me and said, Stephen, man, when are you going to get to Leviticus? Right? It's not something that's on our list to study and to read. So to be honest, I'm excited for the challenge. Test my preaching ability a little bit and preaching chops, see if I can handle this book. And let me just make this guarantee to you, um, if case you're still concerned, I guarantee that this will be one of the top 10 sermon series on Leviticus you have ever heard. Okay? (laughs) Okay? So there's my guarantee. Take it to the bank. Now let me tell you why you should be excited. 
Because if you want to know the entire religious system of Israel, you need to know Leviticus. If you want to appreciate more deeply uh, the theological foundations and rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ our Savior, you need to know Leviticus. If you want to comprehend more fully the meaning behind a holy life, you need to know Leviticus. You want to incorporate ritual or rhythm into your life, in your intentional pursuit of Christ. I think Leviticus is an unbelievable aid. All respect to the great, and no doubt he was a great man of God. Thomas Cramer, if you want to know the Word of God, you need to know Leviticus. All Scripture is God-breathed. Right? All Scripture, Paul wrote. And you may say, well, Paul never read Leviticus. Well, he read it. He quoted it. In fact, of the 39 Old Testament books, Leviticus is the sixth most quoted book in the New Testament. It contains Jesus' favorite verse, at least the verse that Jesus most often quoted, is found in the book of Leviticus. And uh, by the way, even the American Liberty Bell is named after Leviticus, have a verse from Leviticus inscribed right on it. And, and I think it's profound and important. I'm, I'm, in saying that, I'm not saying, listen, there's no doubt that Leviticus is not a page-turner, right? It's not one of those books. It's, it's, not one, it, it's hard. But my, my conclusion is that even though it's hard, it's profound. And I, I think maybe even life-changing. And the more I've considered it, the more amazed I have become, the more impacted I have been. God, my King, now holds a greater majesty in my eyes through my study of this book. My longing for righteousness grows. The roots of my faith feel like they're thicker and deeper. I feel like God is reviving me because of this book. And so this is my prayer that he would do in our lives. So Leviticus, here we go. If you want to understand Leviticus, I think what we need to know is the background to Leviticus. So I'm going to take a little time here. Okay, We're going to spend some time finding the historical context. What's the plan of redemption and where does Leviticus fit into it? I think this may be one of the reasons why we find it difficult is we don't understand how it fits together with what God's doing. And so to understand Leviticus, I think maybe it would be helpful for us to go all the way to the end of Scripture. And I just want to remind you of how Scripture ends. It's in Revelation 21, verse 3. You don't have to turn there, but listen to these words. Look, the tabernacle of God is with humanity. And He will dwell with them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. That is the heart of the Bible. That is the heartbeat we hear throughout Scripture. How can we become with God? How can we be united with God? That's the aim of history. That's the purpose of our existence is to be with God, to live with this holy and great King. And for it's with God that we find fullness and joy and abundance and purpose. And we're designed by God to be with Him. The psalmist knew it for he said in Psalm 36, they are abundantly satisfied with the fatness of your house and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the spring of life. That's the promise held out to the people of God. That you can be with God. That's our hope. But there's a reason that dwelling with God is our hope. 
and not our reality. It's not our reality because God created humans, created this world, put mankind on it, made mankind in His image. And what that means, at least it means that we are, unlike the rest of creation, are able to interact with God in a profound way. We are able to relate to God and find our pleasure and joy in God. And unfortunately, our first parents did not find their pleasure and joy in God. They chose to rebel and communion with God was lost. They were evicted from Eden. And all of us now have lost God. And we've lost, therefore, our purpose, which is to be with God. And rather living in God's presence, we've become, as Scripture says, exiles and wanderers, vainly searching for a home for which we are made. It is this banishment that we read about in Genesis 3, that the banishment from God's presence, that's the tragedy that all of the plan of redemption seeks to remedy. It starts with a man named Abram. And God says to Abram, through you I will bring about a deliverer who will bless the nations. Right? And, and, and yet, when we end that story of Abram, we start to follow his family, we're not back in the garden. We're in fact farther away. We get to the end of Genesis and we're in, people of God are enslaved in Egypt. Right? And then God raises up this other man named Moses. And through the work of Moses, God redeems this new nation called Israel through God's great power. So God begins to deliver them from slavery. You say, why does God take the nation of Israel out from Egypt? Well, we hear about it all the time in the book of Exodus. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they may come and worship me. Let my people go that they can come and feast with me. Let my people go that they can come and be with me. God wants to dwell with His people. Let them go so I can be their God and they can be with me. But Pharaoh would not let them go. And so God in His great power, showing Himself to be the divine King, delivers His people by what the Bible says, the power of His finger. And they are redeemed through God's great power. And we come to Exodus 15. You might find it interesting to look there. In Exodus 15, the people of God are redeemed through the Red Sea. Egypt is destroyed. The armies of Egypt are defeated. And and we find the oldest psalm in the Bible. It's called the Song of Moses. But maybe it's more appropriately called the Song of Israel because you'll see in verse 1, it's not only Moses who sings, but all of Israel. And look at the heart of this psalm. We won't look at it all, but look in verse, excuse me, verse 11. They sing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. They are clearly in awe of the might of this God whom they are now following. Who is like you? They ask over and over again. The answer is deafening. No one is like this God. But look at the promise. As they are in awe, they continue to sing of their hope. Verse 13. You have led them in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to, look at this, to your holy abode. You're bringing this people home. What's home? 
home is to dwell with God. Look at verse 17. You bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever they sing. I like how Michael Morris, the Old Testament theologian, says, even in the depths of such fearful marvel, the song moves on with the undaunted hope to a nearly unimaginable promise, namely that God's people have been delivered precisely for the purpose of abiding with this one to whom none can be compared. And so off they go, headed to the promised land to live with God, and they come by a mountain, and God says, okay, stop here. We need to talk. And Moses is called up to the top of this mountain where God has made His glory begin to shine. Look in Exodus 19, if you will. And there at the foot of this mountain, we read that God is bringing up this man that He may commune with him. And Moses will enter into God's presence in Exodus 19, verse 20. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. So what about the rest of the people of Israel? Well, they're not allowed to come anywhere near that mountain. If they touch it, the Bible says they'll die. In fact, let me show you what Moses is going up into. Look in Exodus 24. Exodus 24, and it's a description of this cloud of God's glory in verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord, listen to this, this will be important for us in Leviticus, was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. What is God like? He's like a consuming fire. And Moses goes up into that fire, which is the manifest glory of God. And what does God say to Moses when he's up there? He says, I want you to build me a house. I want you to build me a a tabernacle. And there I'm going to dwell in your midst. And the rest of the book of Exodus is all about the plans for what this house is like. And then the people of Israel building this house. And they are putting it together. And this house, the, the tabernacle, the abode of God, is to be a place of joy and delight and intimacy with God. The psalmist declares in Psalm 84, for instance, How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, even faints for the court of my Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for her herself. Near your altars, O Lord, my King and my God, how happy are those who dwell in your house ever praising you. Right? That's where God is. You can come and dwell with God. Now, as you know, why Moses is up getting those plans. The people of Israel are down at the base of the mountain up to no good. And they build this golden calf, this idol, and they gather around and begin to worship this golden calf. And God, of course, is furious at them. And God says, I'm going to destroy them all. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. And Moses says, you can't do that because everybody will think you brought us out to kill us. And God says, okay, I won't destroy all of Israel. I'll take you to the promised land, but please understand, I'm not going with you. I have an angel. I'm sending my angel down. 
and my angel will lead you, and my angel has all my power, and he'll defeat all my enemy, all your enemies. He will guide you safely into the promised land, and you will find a land of milk and honey, and you'll find houses which you do not build, and vineyards which you do not plant. But please understand, I'm not going. And Moses says, Lord, if you're not going, I'm staying here in this wilderness. Because I'd rather be in the desert with my God than in a land flowing of milk and honey without him. Because the promise is not a piece of real estate in the Middle East. The promise is to dwell with God. And I want to be with you, God. And wherever you're going, I'm going. And wherever you're not going, I'm not going. Because I am going to stay by your side. And the God of, of, of heaven and earth is so pleased with Moses. He says, okay, Moses, I will lead you. And Moses comes down and they build this house. As I mentioned, the rest of Exodus is the building of the house. And then look at the end of Exodus, okay? Turn over to Exodus 40. The tabernacle is completed. And we finish this book in verse 34. It says, then the cloud, right? The cloud of God's glory, that devouring fire, covered the tent of meaning. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right? The, the, God's glory just comes from the mountain and it comes now into the tabernacle and the tabernacle has finally become the, the abode of God, the dwelling place of God. Now just to capture the significance of this, let me read once more from this man, Michael Morris. He says, The height of the wonder that unfolds with the remarkable closing paragraph of the book of Exodus is that for the first time since the expulsion from the garden... God, through the tabernacle, will dwell amidst humanity once more. When the glory of Yahweh descends upon the tabernacle, therefore, a historic, cataclysmic event takes place. The God of heaven, in all His thunderous majesty, has arrived to dwell with His people on earth. Exodus ends with with this picture of God opening a way now, finally, for humans once again to live in the joyful fellowship, in the intimate communion with their Creator. But there's a problem, right? Because we still haven't dealt with the very issue that God has kicked out of the garden, namely our sin. When God comes, He brings with Him a crisis. The crisis is, how can we as sinful people live with this holy King? In fact, the crisis is not missing, as we see in verse 35 of Exodus 40. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right? It's shocking. Because who's been allowed to go into the cloud of God's glory? Up and down, up and down. It's been Moses and Moses alone. And now, now we see at the end of this book, when God in his, in his manifest glory comes and begins to dwell into this house that not even Moses can come. Right there at the foot of Sinai and the majesty of God entering this tabernacle and it sends Moses running away from God. Can't approach. And it's at this point that the book of Leviticus begins. It takes place over the next year at the foot of Sinai as God gives out his law to solve two problems. Problem number one, the first half of the book of Leviticus, how can we live with this holy king? It's all about worship. How can we worship him? How can we draw near to him? How can we enjoy him? The second question, second problem for the second half of Leviticus, how can we live for this holy king? 
It's all about mission. How can we represent him? How can we first worship him? And how can we be like him to the nations? Okay, so we're going to consider the first question as we begin in Leviticus 1. God now lives with them, and there's no, play, no way for them to approach them, right? So if he's there, he's, he's arrived, but his presence does not bring joy, doesn't bring communion, sends people running the other way. It's almost as if we could say God is at home, but he's not coming to the door. Another way to put it is that we, we call this tent in which God lives the tabernacle, but it's not always called the tabernacle. Sometimes it's called the tent of meeting. In other words, it's the tent where you meet with God. So the question that Leviticus seeks to answer is how can the tabernacle become the tent of meeting? How can we go to God and to be with God and to commune with God? How can we have access with God? The solution, according to this book, is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. That's how you can come to me. The first seven chapters of Leviticus introduce us into five different types of sacrifices. I believe the more familiar you will become with them, the more you will see how they will impact your life and how they will open up much of the rest of Scripture to you, if you understand them. With the five sacrifices, the next three chapters, chapters 8 through 10, tell us about those who offer the sacrifice, the priests. They have many purposes. The sacrifices serve as tribute brought to a ruler, a gift brought to a provider, a means to give praise to God, a way to fellowship with this covenantal God, a, a way to make amends with a neighbor you've wronged, and, and to seek atonement for sin so that you can be restored to God. And the most frequent and the most important of all these sacrifices is the one found in Leviticus chapter 1, the burnt offering. It is, it is the most critical offering as we consider this morning in our study of Leviticus 1, how can we approach God? There are four truths in which I want to help us understand from Leviticus 1 as to how we can approach this most holy king. Number one, we see that they had to approach him at the proper place. The location was um, of utmost importance. As you see in verse 3, if this offering is a burnt offering for the herd, He shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meaning that he may be accepted before the Lord. Okay, so this is God speaking to Moses. Verse 1, God calls Moses to out from outside the tent, speaks to him, begins to instruct him. And he says, okay, when people are going to come to me, they need to come to the entrance of the tent of meaning. You can't come to me anywhere. You need to come to me at this place. The reason this is important is that the tabernacle has been designed purposely by God to teach the people about God. It teaches them, for instance, that God is a king and that the tabernacle represents the authority of a king. And I don't know if you saw on, on the back side of your notes, I didn't bring a copy up with me. You have a kind of a diagram of what the tabernacle um, courtyard looked like. And you see there on the left-hand side of the page something called the most holy place or often called the holy of holies. This is, if you will, God's throne room. There in that place is the Ark of the Covenant, which the Bible calls the footstool of God. On top of the Ark of the Covenant is a lid called the mercy seat. It's referred to as the throne of God. This is the throne room of God. Separating that most holy place from the holy place is a veil, as you know. That veil is made of royal 
purple veil demonstrating that when you're passing through this veil you're passing into the presence of the king you even see um, this emphasized in the elements used to make all the parts of this this whole system on the on the outside when you first come in from the west you see that on the right hand side of your page i believe it is you you have a bronze altar and then you have the bronze laver it's made of bronze you get to the tabernacle and the base of the tabernacle is made with silver you enter into the tabernacle and everything is overlaid with gold. You see, what God is teaching them is that when you're coming to me, please understand that you're coming to a king, that, that I have authority in your life. And the king says, come to worship me. And if you want to come to worship me, this is how you're to do it. You want to come into my presence, this is what you are to bring. These are the things you are to do. Now, please understand that you and I worship this same king, this same God. Now, we worship differently, but we worship the same God. And, and I don't know if, if, if what you thought about you coming today in corporate worship, I wonder if it was in your brain or in your heart that today I'm being summoned before a king. I'm going to come into the presence of the king of kings and I'm going to bring my worship to him. You notice this king does not pull Moses aside and say, okay, Moses, you know, I was thinking about worship and I was wondering about, you know, I had this idea about this burnt offering and I think it'd be really cool if you kill this thing and it's, it's kind of bloody, but I, I think it would teach you. Is that okay with you, Moses? Right? Do you think that would, would the people buy into that? You think that helped grow the, grow the, the nation with that? You, you, you think that would meet people's needs? Would they feel uplifted and encouraged? Would that be a kind of a positive worship experience for them? Right? God, no, God doesn't ask any of those questions. Why? Because he's the king. And I think so often us Western Christians, we come to worship as if we're the king. And is this fitting for me? And do I like that? Or do I like that? Or is the sermon too long? Or is it, do I like these songs? And we, set, we sit on our little throne and we evaluate everything as if worship is revolving around us, as if we have come and we are going to give our stamp of, of approval upon this worship. And I, my hope is that Leviticus would destroy the Christian consumer that plagues many of our hearts. And that you would understand that your preferences about what takes place here on Sunday morning and your evaluation of it has virtually nothing to do with what we are trying to accomplish. We are coming before God to bring Him our worship. I mean, do we even think about it? I wish if I could put one phrase in your heart this morning that you would think about as about our time on Sunday morning is my opportunity, shoulder to shoulder with the redeemed people of God, to bring God something. That I would bring Him my worship. And that might change how you would approach Him. I've been summoned today. With no hyperbole at all, I tell you the truth, I have been summoned today before the King. And so have you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that we might worship Him, to give Him our worship. It shows them the authority of the King, but it also shows Him the majesty of the King. And we don't, I don't have time to flesh this out. It's amazing, though, I'll tell you that. But, but I do want to remind you. Remember when the Sinai and, and, and they, 
They first encounter God. That's the first time they would encounter God in Sinai. And there's this impenetrable black cloud that seems to be on fire, right? And that cloud enters the, the tent, right? And, and just as Moses was only allowed to go up into that cloud, now who's allowed to go into the holy place of God where that cloud now resides? It's just the high priest, isn't it? And you know what's right in front of that veil? It's an altar of incense. What's that doing? It's creating a cloud. That in order to walk into the presence of God, you have once again to walk through this cloud to be with Him. If you would look in Exodus, maybe you want to write Exodus 24, verses 1 and 2, and you will find out that not everybody stayed at the base of the mountain. Moses would go up the mountain and he would take the priests and the elders of Israel with them. But they were only allowed to go halfway up. Right? And what does that show us? Well, it shows that some people are allowed to come closer to God than others. Which is exactly why God designed the holy place where the priests could come into, but the common person can't. And then where the common people do? They're out at the base of the mountain or they're in the courtyard outside the tabernacle. And so this whole system is a portable Sinai, right? To show us what they saw on Sinai. The majesty of this king is now with us. It shows us the authority of the king and it shows us the majesty of the king. But let me tell you lastly, it shows us the intimacy of this king. You get to the end of the book of Leviticus. In chapter 26, verse 11, God says, I will make my tabernacle among you and I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. Man, that sounds a lot like Eden to me. I'm going to walk among you and I'm going to be with you. We're going to reside together. In fact, you go into the tabernacle and there's this... this the uh, candelabra that's made to look like this fruit-bearing tree to remind them of the glories of Eden. And God says, okay, you have to position this tabernacle and it always, the entrance always faces east. Wherever you go, it has to face east. So in order to come to me, you need to go west into the tabernacle. Why? When Adam and Eve were kicked out from the garden, banished from God's presence, where did he send them? He sent them east. And then Cain and Abel could come to the edge of the Garden of Eden, but not enter. But then when Cain slew Abel, God sent him further east. And we get to chapter 11 in Genesis, and we see the Tower of Babel is made where? Out in the east. And so banishment is always seen as going farther and farther east. And now God has arranged it. So when you come to me, where are you going? You're going west. You're coming back home. You're entering into the garden. And even, by the way, that veil which separates God... What's embroidered on that veil, Christians? Cherubim. The only other place in which we see cherubim in the, in the Torah is in Genesis, where God stations two cherubim at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to keep man from God's presence. And now what God is teaching them is that I've planted Eden in the middle of the desert. And wherever you go, Eden goes. I'm with you. And it's where you come and, and dwell with me. So it not only tells us the authority of the king and the, and the majesty of the king, but the fellowship that this king seeks with his people. And God wants to communicate that to them. And I think God seeks that fellowship with us as well, as we know through Christ. We have to move on. There's so much here. It's beautiful and powerful. And the second truth that we see about approaching God is that we need to approach God with the proper gift. And so they must come... And when they come, their hands cannot be empty. They have to bring a proper offering. We're told if they come bringing a burnt offering, I mentioned there are five different types of sacrifices. The burnt offering would be the first. 
You notice in verse 3, it says, if the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, that would mean it was a bull. Okay? Drop down to verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats. So you could bring a bull, you could bring sheep, you could bring goats. Look down in verse 14. If his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds. Right? And what he tells us, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. So you could bring pigeons. The farther you go down this chapter, the smaller the animals get. There's really three main paragraphs. They all very much parallel each other. So I'm not going to really address anything from 10 to 17 because it's already expressed in the first paragraph in the offering of the bull. And the question is, why these options? Right? Why bull? Why sheep? Why, why birds? Well, it's because not everybody could afford a bull, right? Bulls are expensive, I think. Not everybody can afford a sheep. Maybe you're middle class, right? You can't afford a bull, but you can. You got a goat lying around. But maybe you're poor. You don't have a sheep. You don't have a goat. You don't have a bull. Well, maybe you could catch a couple pigeons. See, look, God in His grace makes provision to, for all people to come and worship Him. He is not simply the God of the rich, is He? Even the poor can come and find atonement. We, we learned in our Sunday school class this morning as we learned about Islam that God uh, has His very high regard for the rich who give great, wealthy, sacri- or Allah does, right? Sacrifices to Him. Please understand, that is not the God of the Bible. That is not the true God. God is not interested in how much you bring. He's interested in what you are willing to sacrifice. Even Jesus Christ looked at the widow who put her two pennies in the offering and said she's given more than all the rest. Well, it tells us God is not so poor that He needs the rich people to come and help Him. He owns it all. And in His grace, He says, I want to make a way for everyone to come and to worship Me. I'm not after equal gifts. I just want sacrifice. But I do find it interesting the poor are not off the hook. He does not say, okay, the poor just receive. They don't need to bring anything. They don't, they don't have anything. I'm not going to add. No, they have to bring something too. Right? And so we, we all come in this day. We would all come with our gifts. It is to be one of these type of animals. He explains further. Look in verse 3. He shall offer a male without blemish. Right? He doesn't want you bringing a, a, a goat that's about to die. Right? Keep your blind bulls at home and your three-legged sheep at home. Right? God wants a male without blemish. Now, a male without blemish is hard to find. Right, ladies? uh, He wants perfect. Why? Why does he want something without blemish? Well, we we know you get to the last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, and they're worshiping God, but they're not doing it like God wants. And God speaks to the prophet in Malachi 1. says, you offer blind animals and sacrifices. Is that not evil? When you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it. When you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick and you bring that as your offering, shall I accept that from your hand? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Why a male without blemish? 
why you're perfect, your best animal? Because in offering Him your best, it shows God, it shows all who watch how much you value Him. Right? If you're willing to pay this cost, it shows you honor God. You bring Him your leftovers, you bring Him your three-legged sheep, it shows God's not very important to me. Right? I'm going to give Him what I don't want. I'm going to give Him what's left over. God says you profane me when you do it. In fact, the burnt offering, as we'll see in a moment, is the only offering that is completely given to God. The worshiper does not eat of it. The priest does not eat of it. No one benefits from it. And you come and you surrender this incredibly valuable gift as a declaration of self-disregard and total devotion to God. And I imagine others who might look at that and say, that is foolish. Man, you are burning an entire bowl to ashes you could have butchered that thing and given it to the poor. Just as Judas would say when Mary came to the feet of Jesus and anointed Him with that, that jar of pure nard. And Judas says, what a waste! Sell that and give it to the poor. I'll tell you, it's not a waste to the worshiper of God. Because they want to declare to their own hearts, to God Himself and to all who watch, God is more important to me than my own personal ambitions and my own desires, and I am willing to offer such a gift to this God. And you can imagine the temptation that they must have faced, don't you think? Right? Well, you know, I'm just going to overlook this disease. I'm not going to look too closely to see if this one's diseased, right? It's just going to be burned anyways. It's not important. Certainly God wants me to eat, right? And so I don't have much. I'll give this to God, right? That temptation must have been their heart. I think we have the same temptation today. I mean, what, what is the communicate about God when we can go out and enjoy our fancy dinners and drive our expensive cars and our sons have the best sports equipment and our, 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 our kids have all the, the music lessons and then we say, I don't so have anything to give to God left. And what does it communicate when I have all the time I need to watch all my shows and pursue all my hobbies, but I don't have time to serve God much? It shows them I love my luxuries and I love my amusement and I love my ambitions more than I love Him. These things are more important to me. And God says to the people of Israel, and I think He says to you today, if you love me, you will show it in your sacrifice for me. We're not going to bring a bull and a goat today. That's not our sacrifice. Oh, but there's much in which we can sacrifice. We, we talked about this last night in family worship. And I asked my kids, does your worship cost you anything? You ever think about that? How often do we think about costly worship? We don't think about costly worship. We think about worship that's supposed to pay out. God says, you want to worship me? It's going to cost you something. You ever think, okay, what can I give? What can I sacrifice? What time... What reputation can I sacrifice? What, what giving can I sacrifice? We were talking about this in community group a couple of weeks ago because I can't stop talking about Leviticus. And, and, and one of the teens who was at community group, she says, you know, when I was in Africa on mission, people would walk to church service for an hour or two. What does that say about what they think about God? bear that cost to come and worship him they said god's more important than my day off god's more important than staying home on a hot day walking to god i if i have to walk all day i'll walk to worship this god and we go 10 minutes over as we will today by the way right and we're thinking 
I'm hungry and I need to get going and I got plans today and I just want to ask you the question of great love in your heart as I ask it to myself, what does that say about your opinion of the God who has sent His Son to die for you? He never said that's too much. He said, I'll freely give it. What does it cost you? I think that might be a great question to begin to ponder. Father, I want my worship to cost me something. I want it to. So I could testify to my own heart. And more importantly to you, that you are valuable to me. He wants them to come with a proper gift. Third, he wants us to approach God understanding our proper need. What is the need we have? We do have a need, by the way. We do come to God and it is met. It is found in verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted to make atonement for him. Accepted for him to make atonement for him. Why bring this costly gift? What is, what is the purpose of the burnt offering? One word, and it's the word atonement. The word atonement is mentioned 96 times in the Old Testament. 53 of those times are found in the book of Leviticus. In other words, the book of Leviticus will teach you more about the atonement than perhaps the rest of the Old Testament combined. The atonement simply means that you have two parties that are estranged, right? And to atone is to bring them back together. It's to reconcile. And maybe you've heard, and I think it's very helpful, if you just break that word apart, atonement, to at one meant, right? To be at one with God. That's what atonement is. Now, some people may ask, well, what, what, why are we estranged from God? Because most people in today don't think they're estranged from God, that they and, they and God are just fine, right? Um, I, I was uh, watching a 60 Minutes of uh, Michael Bloomberg the other day. And, he, and Michael Bloomberg is a very generous, a billionaire, self-made, very generous man, by the way. Um, and he says, when I get to heaven, he says, I'm going to get to skip the interview and walk right in. And then the interview was over. And I just, it just, it's like he has no idea of the estrangement that we have with God. We are all estranged with God. Why? Why are we barred from His presence? Why can't we just walk right in? It's this little thing called sin. And we don't like to talk about sin today. Sin is kind of one of those things that we've kind of decided doesn't exist. We're we're almost done, my family, after this nine months of um, almost done being certified as foster parents. We had our our second to last home visit last week. And I was being interviewed with how I disciplined my children. Uh, with with the caseworker and I said well before there's any discipline we identify the sin in which has been committed so we need to understand what they're being disciplined for and that they know it and she says well well wait a second uh, you can't talk to your foster children about sin I said well, what do you mean he says well we don't we don't really want to emphasize right and wrong we want to represent whether behavior is appropriate or inappropriate and so you could identify it as an inappropriate behavior for which you're disciplining but not we certainly don't want to call it wrong or sinful or evil. Now, all, all deference to our government and all the wisdom that it has, um, let me just say the scripture has been around a lot longer than the, the Department of Social Services, right? And, um, and so I'm going to go with the scripture on this one um, and, and think that God has told us that there are some things that are fundamentally wrong. Not just they are inappropriate, but they are wrong. They are sinful. And it's when we live our own lives in regard to, with disregard to our Creator. 
Because they're very, very interested in how you're going to live your lives and we don't live our lives according to that. And we've ruptured that relationship with our Creator. Now, God is good and therefore He is going to punish sin. It's not God punishes sin because He's bad. He punishes sin because He's good. And we think we all, if I could talk to you for five minutes, I would prove to you that you think punishing sin is good as, as well. The exception is yourself, right? We don't like it when it happens to us. But other people, we believe in justice, right? And, and so God says, okay, because I'm going to punish sin, in grace, I'm giving you this burnt offering to set my wrath aside. And we see this, by the way, throughout Scripture. And so remember when David has this ill-fated census, right? And God sends this plague on Israel. And David runs to the, to, the, uh, the, to, to the altar. And what does he do? He gives burnt offering. And when he gives the burnt offering, God's wrath is set aside. Remember when Job begins... Uh, um, Job chapter 1, he, he offers these burnt offerings because he says, it might be that my children have sinned. Remember at the end of Job, when, when God says to these foolish counselors, he says, you need to offer burnt offerings for your sin. Right? See, the burnt offering is to take care of our sin. It's so that we can be accepted with God. Look at the end of verse 3. He says, we do all this that he may be accepted before the Lord. So if a sinful man seeks acceptance before the Lord, atonement must be made. God's holiness requires atonement. But in His grace, He offers a way for it to be made. And there is grace throughout the book of Leviticus. And there's a lot of law, but I don't want you to think law equals, you know, not grace. It is God's grace that He gives it to us. It's God's grace that He would dwell with them. It's God's grace that He would invite these people to come be with them. I mean, what, what, what grace of a holy God that He would call for rebels, right? Those people who have their lives opposed Him, that they might come to Him not to receive judgment by this King, but atonement and fellowship. That God invites sinners not the righteous, into His presence. Maybe you're not a Christian. You don't understand that. God is not looking for the good people. There is no good, there's one good person. His name is Jesus. And all the rest of us are not good. And in His grace, He invites us to come be with Him in unimaginable grace. The God, the holy God of this world wants to have fellowship with us. He wants to be made one with us. But we have to approach God in the proper way. In the proper way. Fourthly, consider the proper way to approach God. This is my last point this morning. You're going to find very detailed instructions here. We'll go through them quickly. But in the instructions, I think you'll see three truths about how to approach God. The first is that we need to seek substitution. Look in verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him. Well, that is in his place. And so what you would do when you do the sacrifice, you bring this bull or the sheep or whatever and you would, you would put your hands upon the head of this animal. Now, to let, when I understand lay is a weak word, it literally is to press, to lean in on. And though it's unsaid, it's most likely, according to most Old Testament scholars, not done in silence. It's very easy to imagine a worshiper bringing his family and meeting a priest at the entrance of the, the tent of meeting and telling him why he's come and why he's brought this animal, 
right? And then, and then perhaps the whole family laying their hands upon the head of this animal. This would not be done in silence. The laying of hands is almost always associated with prayer. And so they would there gather around this animal and they, they would have prayed as they laid their hands on. They may have sung at this time. You will be surprised to know how many psalms refer to the burnt offering. And many people think they were sung during this time. And so there would be a time of, of, of praise with the priest and this, and this worshiping family there together. And the priest would then examine the sacrifice and to give assurance as the mediator that this sacrifice would be accepted by God for their atonement. I, want you to understand, I just want you to understand it's not some empty ritual. In fact, I think a ritual, ritual can be very powerful. Right? It's an it's a, it's a act of faith that they come. This is, in fact, I think it's far more, far less um, empty than quite often church attendance can be. I mean, they had to select the animal, they had to bring it to their, to there, and it involves their heart and their mouths and their hands and their feet, right? And they're, they're praying and they're, and they're praising God and they're, in fact, Psalm 51 says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Now, David's not saying, don't bring burnt offerings. David brought burnt offerings. But he's saying, you can't just do it with nothing going on in your heart. When you seek God's atonement, you have to be broken. You have to be aware of your sin. Right? And, and the desire of the worshipers, they would come to longing to be restored with God, this heartfelt obedience to God. Maybe, maybe a conversation you could have over lunch today is how can we keep church attendance from becoming an empty weekly ritual? That our hearts can be engaged. Heartfelt, obedient worship. They would press their hands upon the sacrifice. And in doing so, they are identifying this sacrifice in their place. It is a dramatic declaration that this male without blemish has taken my place. It's substitution. And then what they take? They take that animal, as we'll see in a moment, and they would burn it completely on the altar. You know, just imagine for a moment. I don't, anybody know how long it takes to burn up a bowl into ashes? I, don't, I haven't timed it out, but I think it's going to take a while. There's no doubt in my mind that that family would have stayed there at the base of the altar. Maybe in silence for hours. As they watch this fire consume this animal. We know, of course, God has been identified as the devouring fire. The consuming fire. I think it might have impacted their heart as they recognized that that animal that is being burned by the fire of God is taking the wrath that is due me. That I should be on that altar. I should be devoured by God. You think that might have emphasized the weight of sin in their own heart as they saw the substitute take their place. And beyond the burning of the animal, they had to offer blood. You'll see that in verse 5. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw it, throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The same they would do with the sheep, slightly different with the birds, because birds don't have as much blood. Once the animal is identified, once they say, this animal is me, the worshiper would then kill the animal by slitting its throat. I don't know. I've never done anything like that, but I think that would be a very moving experience to take a knife and to slay an animal. This is not routine. They they don't don't have a lot of animals. The priest would then have a bowl underneath the throat of the animal and catch there as the blood drains from the animal. The the priest would catch uh, that blood in that that bowl. And what they're doing is they're acknowledging that my my sin requires death. This 
animals dying in my place. And um, they're uh, without a doubt being impacted by that. The priest would then, as some Old Testament scholars believe, he would then raise the bowl of blood and pray, giving thanks for atonement. He then walked to the altar, and you notice very carefully, some translations say sprinkle, but that's not what's happened. As my translation says, he'll throw the blood on the sides of the altar. It's not a little bit of blood. There's a lot of blood. This is a very bloody book. In fact, my, my kids have this, um, these uh, picture Bibles. You've seen these kids' picture Bibles? And they're, they're amazing. They're wonderful. And, and they've got, a, they got a, you know, pictures for every book in the Bible. And so I went and gra- I wanted to see how it did Leviticus, to be honest. So I went and grabbed my kids' picture Bible. There were 60 pages on Exodus, 40 pages on Numbers, one page on Leviticus, and not a drop of blood. <laughs> see. Oh, we want to protect our kids from these realities, but I don't think God was so interested in protecting them from it. I think He wanted to see... I mean, this is sober. Isn't this? This, is, this is startling. It's very graphic. And it's supposed to startle us. And I, I think, as I've been pondering this, I think... I'm missing something in my life that will help me understand the magnitude of my sin. I don't know what the solution is. It's certainly not killing an animal. Uh, but maybe there's something that as I think about the Lord's Supper, as we think about the weight of our sin and what it costs, that there might be something to help us more fully appreciate what God has done for us. Right? This would be a, this continual reminder that sin leads to death. You say, well, why blood? Why not just kill the animal? Well, um, the blood is called the lifeblood sometimes. It represents the life of the blood. Levitic, uh, life of the animal, excuse me. Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. You see, our goodness is inadequate. In God's grace, He has given us the blood of a sacrifice that we might make atonement. You see, lastly, that this offering will please the Lord. Look in verse 6. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron shall put the fire on the altar and arrange the wood on, of, on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is where we see why it's called a burnt offering because the whole thing is burned, as we've already mentioned. He would, um, the worshiper would, would then butcher the animal, not the priest. And first piece of the animal he would give to the priest would be the head. The priest would climb up upon the altar, it's about four and a half feet high, and he'd burn the head and the fat. And while the priest is doing that, the worshiper and his family, they would wash the hind legs and the entrails of the animal, removing all the fecal matter from the animal because it's not worthy to give to God. They'd be cleaning this animal so that it would be a, a perfect uh, uh, gift to God. And, and, and there they would burn it there. And I, was, I mean, you and, you're going to eat meat today, aren't you? And you probably ate meat yesterday and, and the day before. These guys, they want to eat meat every day. They may eat meat once a year, if that. This is an unbelievable luxury for them. And I think if you and I just watched a sheep get burnt up, that would impact even us. Can you imagine what to do for a poor man who, who doesn't get this and is giving that to God, right? And, and, and as they do, listen, it not only impacts the worshiper, it impacts God. As we said, it's already, it appeases his wrath. But here's the thing, the, the burnt offering doesn't simply move God from a position of hostility to neutrality. It's just not an appeasing sacrifice. It's a pleasing sacrifice. It moves him from hostility to pleasure. 
You see that at the end of verse 9? It's a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We see that again in verse 13 and again in verse 17. That, that we, it would be better to think the offering is not t- destroyed, it's transformed into the symbolic imagery of aroma, pleasing God. That God is pleased when we worship Him in faith and obedience. That brings God delight to worship Him. I don't know, do you come here today thinking, I can't wait to delight my God in my act of worship. And that even enter your mind. This is God in His grace saying, I want you to understand when you worship me rightly, that brings me pleasure. Isn't that amazing that you and I can please God? And not just through our corporate worship, through all of our life. It's the burnt offering that Paul had in mind when he said in Romans 12, I urge you therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. To say, God, I give you everything. I will sacrifice for you. Sacrifice is fundamental in the Christian life. We don't sacrifice bulls and goats anymore. We sacrifice ourselves. And you and I need to identify where is there sacrifice in my life as I follow after God in order to please Him. Now the question as we end this morning is okay, so you got this bull, this goat. Did it really did it really take away sin? Right? Hebrews 10, verse 4 says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So what's happening here? Let me give you an analogy which has very much helped me, and I hope it will help you. That we might compare these burnt offerings or the atoning sacrifices in the Old Testament to that of writing a check to cover a debt. And so we're indebted to God because of our sin. We come to Him and we write Him a check that will cover the debt. And God in His grace receives the check, now declares the debt has been paid, but never cashes it. You know why? <laughs> you got nothing in the account. Right? Zero. He never cashes it until one day there's a massive deposit put into the account. Namely, Jesus Christ's death for you. And it's then that God goes and cashes the check and your debt is paid. Now that's an analogy, but it's, it's helpful for me to understand how these are working in some sense only because Christ one day will come. In the language of Hebrews, it says the law was a shadow of the good things to come, not the realities. So what's the reality? Right? The reality is Jesus Christ. It all pointed to Christ and they would sacrifice over and over, year after year and decade after decade and centuries after centuries, right? As this continual pointer to the perfect sacrifice to come. And one day, the last prophet of God looks upon Jesus and he declares, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all the shadows fade in the brilliance of the Lord. He is the, bl- the burnt offering to which all burnt offerings pointed with two differences. First difference, it is no longer the guilty sinner presenting the sacrifice on his or her own behalf. Instead, it's the offended king who presents the atoning sacrifice for the guilty sinner. Is that not extraordinary? That the one who has sinned against pays the debt for the one who does the sin. Second difference, 
the sacrifice the offended king gives on behalf of the guilty partner is himself. It is not a bull or a goat or a pigeon. It is none other than the Son of God. The one who has sinned against pays the debt. He didn't offer sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. He is the male without blemish. For Hebrews 9 says Christ offered Himself without blemish. He is the substitute. For the Bible says God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He is the pleasing aroma. For Scripture says in Ephesians 5 that Christ gave Himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He is the bloody sacrifice for you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, Peter tells us. And as we see the blood of Jesus pulling at the altar that is the cross, we are reminded of His shed blood. As Hebrews 10 tells us, He appeared one time at the end of ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Why? So that through His bloody sacrifice, you, sinner, and me, a sinner, might live in joyful fellowship and intimate communion with our Maker, the King of Kings. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, I implore you to place your hands upon the head of Jesus. Lean into Him in faith and say, You are my substitute. You are my sacrifice. And I appeal to the shed blood of Jesus Christ for my atonement. My Christian brothers and sisters, my hope is that these truths would be a banquet for our souls. That we can see all that God has done in order to allow us to be able to be with Him and to fellowship with Him and to know Him and to walk with Him. And that we would marvel at that love and grace and that it would change our lives as we seek deeper and deeper intimacy with our Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we believe You are the Holy King of Kings. And we by Your grace, forgiven rebels, gather here in this room that we might worship You and know You. We are thankful today for the burnt offering of our Lord that we can have atonement, that we can be with You. And now, in light of that, help us, we pray, to live a life that reflects accurately who You are and what You have done. That we would believe that You do not exist for us, but we are made for You. Help us to believe that truth and live in light of it. As we praise you for our Lord and his work, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.